Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 15, Great Minds, Part 2. Freya was the favourite concubine, or perhaps the beloved wife, of Odin. She wanted to buy a golden necklace that had been forged by four dwarves. She offered them gold and silver, but they said they would only sell it to her if she would lie a night beside each of them. She did so, and came home with the necklace, keeping her secret as if nothing had happened. Loki found out about this because Loki always does. He told King Odin what had happened. Odin ordered Loki to steal the necklace, which he did by transforming into a fly and sneaking into Freya's room. When Freya found that her necklace was missing, she came to King Odin. Odin said yes, she could have it back if she made two kings and their entourages fight forever. She said yes, retrieved her necklace, and condemned King Hogni and King Hedin to battle for all time. Any time one of them fell, they would stand up again and keep fighting. This version of the story was written by Christians a few years later, so they've put in a get-out clause. The only thing that could stop the fighting was if brave Christian men entered the fray and killed the two kings. After 143 years, the Christian lord Olaf Tryggvason came ended the fighting, dissolved the curse, and then went home again. At least Freya had her necklace back. There are various versions of this story, but in all of them, Freya is associated with beauty, love, and peace. Loki is associated with sneaking around and cheating. And there's a big battle scene with an uncertain outcome. Last week, we started exploring the history of philosophy of sport. This week we conclude that story by looking at some of the aspects of sport that interest present-day philosophers. We'll talk about ethics, or the lack of them, as demonstrated by Loki, and aesthetics, personified by Freya, and violence, as experienced by the poor kings who had to fight for 140 years or more. We'll also look back at the racing in Ostersund, and ahead to the final race weekend of the season in Oslo. Let's begin with ethics. We talked last time about the concept of formalism. That was the idea that rules are the basis of sport. When it comes to ethics, formalists say, the rules are the rules and that's that. If you don't stick to the rules, you're not playing the sport. Effectively, you're cheating. In simple terms, you can't play the game and break the rules at the same time. Formalists, those who believe in the strict rules, despise things like drug taking but also things that might be softer forms of cheating or gamesmanship, like a sneaky handball in soccer, or obstructing someone lane on the ski tracks. Here we can talk about the concept of sportsmanship. This is seen in philosophy as something more than just sticking to the rules. It's also not an absolute, but it's seen as something which might be different depending on context. If you're playing sport for pleasure, you may have a different perspective on sportsmanship than if you're playing at the highest competitive level. Philosopher Diana Abad suggests four aspects of sportsmanship. Fairness, equity, honour, and the will to win. And recognises that these might not always be compatible. There's a lovely definition from Randolph Fiesel, which says sportsmanship is the midpoint between excessive seriousness and excessive playfulness in sport. Cheating is obviously seen as a moral failure in sport, but even this is hard to define. A strategic foul in soccer is cheating, but it's kind of cheating within the rules. If you've been fouled and you foul someone back, 
is that balancing the scales of fairness or simply more cheating? And what if everyone's cheating? This is the long tail within the discussion of doping, particularly in cycling and the shame of the Lance Armstrong era. Each year, we find more and more competitors that at that time were cheating through drug use. And if everyone is cheating, then the competition becomes fair again, so is that okay? You can respond to this morally. Drugs are bad, cheating is bad, or if everyone's doing it, what's the problem? Similarly, if one of the principles of sport is the will to win, then sometimes cheating isn't just permissible, it's almost necessary to achieve your goal. If fair play would cause you to lose, but cheating would help you win, aren't you just fulfilling your imperative? Think about a relay team where you're competing with and on behalf of others. A little bit of cheating might be a good thing to do if it helped your teammates. Again, morality might kick in here and say, no, it's never good. But philosophy doesn't necessarily make that choice. I've mentioned drugs and doping as types of performance enhancement, and generally it feels like people are pretty much, drugs are bad. That said, it's certain types of drugs that are bad. We're kind of okay with asthmatics taking steroid inhalers, though it's problematic for non-asthmatics to be using them. We're okay with athletes taking painkillers in order to be able to play. In fact, some contact sports would be almost impossible to play without drugs. But what about other forms of performance enhancement? In swimming, we saw a raft of world records broken with the introduction of highly aerodynamic or aquadynamic bodysuits. These were then banned. In cycling, we've seen the principle of marginal gains applied to bodysuits, bikes, handlebars, shoes, anything which reduces the weight of the bike and increasing aer increases aerodynamics or power output. What if a biathlete has laser eye surgery to help them achieve more? Whether and how you draw distinctions is an interesting philosophical and ethical question. On to those fighting kings and violence and danger in sport. Many sports contain elements of violence or danger. Contact sports can be fatal, as can dangerous or extreme sports like downhill skiing. For some thinkers, dangerous sports are the manifestation of how sports should be. They're examples of people challenging themselves to achieve perfection against a series of obstacles. They help us to understand risk and danger and to make assessments of them. For others, collision sports like boxing or American football carry too much risk for their participants. Here, the principle of consent is crucial. Have the participants consented knowing the risks that they face? It goes further than this to the principle of consensual domination, which is a kind of knowing slavery. You're selling yourself into sporting slavery to achieve your goals, which means that you are consenting to the risk that the sport brings. Social issues come in here too. If you come from a deprived background and sport is your way out of poverty, are you able to consent freely or are you making yourself a slave? Link this back to cycling and doping. For cyclists who are never going to be at the top level, signing up to a team might mean signing up to a doping program in order to achieve certain results. Is this really consent? The danger of sport comes in many varieties. As I said, sometimes it's about contact and collision between the participants, boxing, wrestling, cage fighting, but also things like rugby. Sometimes it's about the practice itself, anything involving being off the ground like diving or gymnastics, or excessive speed like Formula One or MotoGP. And sometimes it's about the terrain, the snow, the ice, the water. In contact sports, sometimes the violence is deliberate. You're supposed to make a tackle. But it's also constrained by rules. 
you're only supposed to tackle in a certain way. This application of rules sets boundaries on violence. It says, this is a space in which you can hurt each other, but not too much, not in an unfettered way. Some psychologists and philosophers talk about humans having an instinct for aggressive behaviour. Without aggression, our ancestors would not have survived the dangers of the savannah. Sport and the rituals that surround it, taking sides, chanting, shouting at what's happening, provide an outlet for our aggression that is mediated through the world of sport. By shouting at our football team, they say, we avoid shouting at each other. There are problems with this theory, however. Firstly, our aggressive behaviour may be more to do with our cultures than with our prehistoric ancestry. Some cultures are more aggressive than others, hence you see different behaviours from different fans. Contrast the images of football hooligans from various European countries with those of Japanese football fans clearing up litter in the stadium after a match. Equally, not all sports are aggressive. They may be competitive, and that may lead to a personification of the athlete as violent or aggressive, but that's not the same thing. Also, much of the research and thinking in this area has been around the behaviour and aggression of men. If sport is an outlet for aggression, why do incidences of domestic violence increase after a preferred football team loses? What differences are there in aggressive instinct between men and women? To what extent are these differences cultural or biological? Something that is interesting is the notion that sports are a space outside the everyday. They are a different domain from your domestic life or your working life. They are a place where you can belong to a different tribe and indulge in behaviours that you wouldn't elsewhere. Imagine singing a supportive chant at your colleague in a work meeting, or jumping up and down shouting yes when your youngest gets a good grade in their schoolwork. This extra domain given, us, given to us by sport is similar to other interests. If you play Dungeons and Dragons, you'll know what I mean. You can move outside the codes of conduct of everyday life and participate in something with its own codes, its own rules. You can escape. Ultimately, what you escape to may simply reinforce what you had, rather than being a catharsis or a healing of other life problems. But for those few hours... We heard a lot last time from a philosopher called Bernard Suits. He was the one who set out a four-part definition of sport, being about physical skill, with a following, and some sort of stability or organisation to it. One of the other things he came on to do was to split sport into two, what he called referred games and judged performances. You can probably figure out the difference. A referred game is something like soccer, tennis or basketball. The players compete directly against each other within a set of rules that govern their conduct. A judged performance is something like figure skating or gymnastics, where competitors are trying to achieve an ideal or perfect performance. Soccer players face obstacles, only using your feet, playing the other team, whereas figure skaters try to manifest the right combination of power and grace to be perfect. This thinking led to some kerfuffle in contemporary sports philosophy. Some philosophers disagreed because they said that those performance sports still set limits on what can be done. The dimensions of an ice rink, the types of equipment that can be used, the amount of time available for a routine. Others said yes, there probably is a difference, but that it's more about aesthetic criteria being more prominent in those judged performance sports. One philosopher, C.L.R. James, looked at cricket and considered whether sport can also be an art. Not just the more aesthetic performative sports, but a rather static and willfully obscure sport like cricket. Sport and art are similar, he argues. 
because both have been created to be beautiful. We talk about soccer being the beautiful game, and there's an artistry in watching Lionel Messi dribble the ball, just as there's an artistry in watching Johannes Tinger's bow or Martin Foucard rattle down five targets in 15 seconds. It's more than just technique, it's theatre. There are four aspects of sport that we could call aesthetic. The feelings we get when we watch physical activity or endeavour with the sense that the athletic body is in itself beautiful. The nature of some sporting performances which have an artistic element, like figure skating or gymnastics. The presentation of the show itself. And the aesthetics of the competitive environment, in our case snowy tracks through winter forests with a backdrop of dramatic mountains. I've talked about the presentation of the show itself, the pageantry, before, so let's just reflect on how athletes are presented. If society places a value on physical attributes, then you get a kind of lionisation of those who look strong and healthy. It's no coincidence that classical and neoclassical statues tended to show us nudity and musculature, even when the subjects depicted might actually have been quite skinny and nerdy. And we know that the objectification and celebration of human athleticism can lead us to some dark places. The Nazi celebration of specific physical and racial traits had horrifying counterpart in their treatment of people who did not fit their ideal. And yet we can recognise the aesthetic value in the overlay provided by Lenny Riefenstahl's films made at the time. It's interesting in more recent times to note the emergence of the geek or nerd as the peak of culture. Computer programmers are the new superheroes which leads to a celebration of mental endeavour rather than physical. And it's probably no coincidence that the favourite sport of computer programmers, snowboarding, is carried out in clothes which specifically de-emphasise physicality. You can't see muscles, you can't see strength, you can't see gender. Snowboarding is unusual, however. Athletes are more often presented in ways which emphasise both their strength and their gender. This is diminishing in some sports, cyclists, cross-country skiers, biathletes, footballers, wear similar clothing regardless of gender. But it's still a significant factor in sports like gymnastics, athletics and beach volleyball, where women's outfits are more likely to be decorative or to show more skin than men's for no sporting reason. Anyway, that's for another day. Here's the broader philosophical story. Sport isn't designed as an art, but it conveys something like art to us usually when the performance is graceful or stylish, or just somehow elevated above what you or I could do. The competitive nature of sport should mean that any aesthetic outcome is secondary. The important thing is winning, they say. But the process by which someone wins gives us an aesthetic pleasure in itself. This is even the case in some of the most violent sports like boxing, where commentators will talk about beautiful punches or stylish fighters. We hear people in biathlon and other endurance sports talk about a loss of form or a loss of style when fatigue kicks in. We never see Benedict Doll on screen without hearing about his distinctive head nod, something which does not meet the aesthetic ideal of what a skier should look like. I guess sometimes it is possible to win ugly. Another thing to mention here is literal de decoration. Many female athletes and athletes in other sports can be seen competing in makeup. Dorothy Vera and Lisa Vitozzi are probably the most visible right now, but also former biathlete Gabriella Kukalova and track stars like the late great Florence Griffith Joyner, or more recently Shikari Richardson and Queen Harrison. It's a curious thing to me, so I wanted to delve into it a little. Some athletes themselves say that makeup gives them a form of self-expression when everything else, shoes, shorts, shirts, is dictated by the sports rules, their team or their sponsor. 
Some say that it's a confidence thing. It's their game face, if you will. The mask they put on to say, I am the competitor. Think of it as a modern form of war paint. Equally, alongside the narratives of empowerment, we know that there are societal pressures on female athletes that are different to those on men. Female athletes are generally expected to look pretty at the same time as they look strong. Women who are too heavily muscled come under criticism. We still carry these latent biases about what a female athlete should look like, even as they compete in the same sports over the same distances as male athletes. Female athletes face greater scrutiny about their body weights as well as body shape, and the pressures of competition and coaching can lead to body dysmorphia, anorexia and bulimia. It's been interesting to hear this year that female cross-country skiers in Norway have to reach a minimum weight to be allowed to compete. Sport is art in the sense that it is graceful, that it involves the human body in motion, that it has drama and it has innovation. These give us aesthetic pleasure. But we also recognise that sport can be ugly. It has risk, it has danger, it has mud, it has blood and injury. Even athletes will often say that they prefer an ugly win over a beautiful defeat. Perhaps the thing to say, as set out by Alessio Vivas, is that sport cannot be experienced with disinterest. Because it has an element of competition, sport always forces a choice on both athletes and spectators. It always forces a comparison. And because sport is indeterministic, we don't know what the outcome will be, it is dramatic. And the resolution of that drama gives us an aesthetic pleasure that we would get from a play in a theatre, a movie or a TV show. This is why the underdog stories are so important. I talked about this in a previous episode. It's the possibility of the unexpected that inhabits sports and the satisfaction from resolving the drama that give us pleasure, even if we were rooting for the other guy. Now I've set this up a little bit by talking about beauty, Benedict Doll's nodding head and rooting for the underdog. So let's dive in to what happened in Ostersund. Well, we thought there would be surprises and there were. The women's individual race was great fun and led to a showdown between the two glorious Italians, Dorothy Avera and Lisa Vitozzi. Both shot 20 out of 20 and made it look effortless. And this was the day that Doro found that extra bit of ski speed to take the win. Lisa Vitozzi, I think, knew she wasn't going to win and eased off the pace a little bit. I could be wrong about that, but came in second and that was enough to clinch the crystal globe in the individual discipline. Denise Hermann Vick and Vanessa Voigt both shot 19 out of 20 for Germany and came in third and sixth. Julia Simon shot 18 out of 20, but had the speed and determination to finish fourth. And there was a fantastic fifth place for Canada's Emma Lunder, shooting 20 out of 20 and continuing the sort of form that she showed in the World Championships. The Swedish women had a torrid time on the range, as did the French women. In fact, the French women were among the fastest on skis but just couldn't muster anything better than 17s or 18s on the range. The men's individual was wide open, mainly because of absences related to Covid. There was no Johannes Sautaye Beau, no Ligrid, no Samuelson, no Quentin Fion Maillet. So effectively you could bump everyone up by five places in the order. It felt like a day for a veteran, and so it proved, with Benedict Doll taking the win by a wide margin. Germany's men shot as well as the women, with Philipp Naurath and Roman Rees both finishing in the top five. Vettel Christensen took third, and that was enough to win the Crystal Globe, 
and there were two exciting performances by youngsters. Tommaso Iacomel of Italy took off a little bit of his crazy ski speed to focus on his shooting and got his first ever podium finish in second, whilst 21-year-old Eric Perrault of France shot 19 out of 20 and had enough juice to finish sixth. The women's relay gave us a good contest between some of the major nations, Norway, France, Germany and Italy. The home favourites, Sweden, had a bad time. Average shooting, a fall for one of their races, a below par Elvira Erberg. They struggled throughout, although Hannah Erberg was still able to bring them in in fifth place. The others were all together at the halfway point and you kind of felt it would go to Norway. With Tandrevold and Roisland finishing the day, they were by far the strongest. Italy fell away to fourth, and that left a head-to-head -head between Denise Hermanwick and Anais Chevalier-Boucher for second and third. And it was Anais who held her nerve again, shot brilliantly whilst Denise struggled. France took second and the Crystal Globe for the Women's Relay season-long World Cup. The men's relay was a curious one. Of the major nations, only Germany were putting out what looked like a full-strength team. They were probably the favourites going in, but some problems on the range for Johannes Kuhn saw them slip back before recovering to third. Sweden struggled all day too. In fact, the Swedes didn't have much fun at their home meet at all. Perhaps the successes of the World Championships and the warm glow of victories from Nova Miesto finally turned into hangovers by the time they got to Ostersund. It was left to Norway and France to battle it out. Norway had started with their two more junior biathletes, Stromsheim and Surum, and they'd done well enough to be competitive at the halfway point, with Lombardo and Gigona for the French having a tougher time. That said, Giganard gave us a great demonstration of the difference between top 10 biathletes like him and some of the newcomers, skiing so much faster than them. For France, Eric Perrault popped up on the third leg and shot clean, making up ground on Norway's Johannes Dahle, and it left a head-to-head -head between Christensen and Fabien Claude at the end. Sometimes biathlon comes back to bite you. Fabien had been tremendous in some recent relays and had said so publicly but he muffed his standing shoot and ended up on the penalty loop. This sport is cruel, but we also know that he'll bounce back. The two mass start races on Sunday were great fun, competitive all the way through and very hard to predict. In the women's mass start, there were many strong starts for many of the top races, although Lisa Fatozzi got off to a bad start missing two of the first five targets and never really recovered. Dorothy Avera hung in there alongside Lou Jamino of France, but it was Julia Simon who really threw down the gauntlet and tried to take the race on from the front. She skied powerfully and built a small advantage coming into the final shoot. She looked so solid and in command throughout, but the final shot of the day got away from her and she dropped behind Vera and Jean Monod. Vera was the one with the strength and speed over the final lap and she took the win with a perfect 20 out of 20. Jean Monod was happy enough with second, but you could see that Julia was frustrated as she crossed the line in third. She has such high expectations of herself, but she's been really consistently on or near the podium for most of the season and is still leading the overall World Cup standings. Shoutouts to Emma Lunder again and Vanessa Voigt for 20 out of 20 shoots and top 10 finishes. Also to Caroline Colombo, who built on her relay confidence to finish fifth despite two misses. She was skiing super fast and seems to be stepping up to a higher profile within the incredibly strong French women's team. The final race of the weekend under the blue skies that we saw throughout the whole meet was the men's mass start. This saw the return of Stora Holm Ligrid after a bout of Covid, and he performed well for the first half of the race before fading. 
there was a strong group of athletes, Johannes Dahle, Sebastian Stalder, Michael Kretschmarsch, and several of the German team battling away out front. But ahead of them all was Vettel Christensen. He looked imperious, much like Julia. He'd obviously decided that he was going to attack the race, build a gap, and trust his shooting. For Vettel, it worked. 20 out of 20, and a big smile as he crossed the line in first place. It's almost as if the absence of the Bow brothers had given him the confidence to step up and win, just as the absence of Roysland and Eckhoff gave Ingrid Tandrevold a boost on the women's side. Second place came down to a sprint between Johannes Dahle of Norway and Eric Perrault of France, who shot clean in the last two standing shoots while others struggled. Funny how the relay matchup came to be the mass start matchup too. Dale was the stronger at the end of the race and captured second place, but it's a first World Cup podium for Perrault. He has a very cool head when it comes to standing shooting, which will hopefully serve him well as he builds his career. Perhaps the highlight of the day was Simon Ada, aged 42, beating out Benedict Dole in a sprint finish to take seventh. There's life in the old dog yet. And so this is it, the last week of the biathlon season. And we go to the home of it all, perhaps, the Holmenkollen Arena in Oslo. Holmenkollen is a neighbourhood in North Oslo that's based around a big hill. And what do you do with a big hill? Well, you put a ski jump on it. There's been competitive ski jumping there since 1892. Winding around the base of the ski jump, you find the cross-country tracks and the biathlon range. The ski jump has been rebuilt many times, most recently in the 2010s, and it now has a striking profile. It seems to float in the air. It also features a bar at the top if you're feeling brave. The whole complex is on the edge of the city, accessible by metro in about 20 minutes from the city centre, and looks absolutely like heaven if you're a Nordic sports fan. So this week's schedule, we start with the sprints. So on Thursday the 16th of March at 2.15 UK time, we have the men's sprint. Friday the 17th at 2.20, we have the women's sprint. Then on Saturday, we have both pursuit races, the men's at 11.45 and the women's at 2.10. And then on Sunday the 19th of March, we have both mass start races, the men at 11.50 and the women at 2.10. I'm recording this on Monday, uh, so the weekend's racing in Austerson is still very fresh in my mind, and this obviously leads to a bit of recency bias. Things come to mind because they've been in mind very recently, and we expect the same sort of outcomes next week as we saw last week. Sport has a way of busting recency bias to smithereens. Recency bias tells us that because Eric Perrault had a great weekend in Ostersund, he'll do the same in Oslo. However, biathlon is fickle, and it's incredibly hard to build consistency at the highest level, especially when you're just starting out in this sport. Earlier this season, we got very excited for Sophie Chauveau and Lou Jean Monod, but Sophie has struggled in the latter half of the season while Lou has thrived. You just don't know how it's going to go. The reason I'm saying this is because after Perrault's great weekend, there were quite a few commentators and Twitter folk comparing him to former legends and starting to build a weight of expectation that one weekend would lead to a long career of glory. Sport doesn't work like that. Amelia and Jacqueline appeared on Twitter as the voice of reason, reminding people that all athletes are different, they have different personalities, skills and career tra trajectories. He's wise, Emilien. He knows what it's like and we should listen to him more. Success in sport is different for everyone. Sometimes there are breakthrough athletes who go on to become immediate game changers. Think of a Simone Biles, for example. More often there are people who have early flashes of success 
and then work even harder to try to recreate it. Very rarely you get the kind of domination in a sport that we've seen in men's biathlon, with the Bjorn Dahlen decade, the Foucard decade, and now possibly the Johannes Bo decade. It's not normal to have that sort of dominance. Men's biathlon is the freaky exception. Eric will be fine, but let's just let him do his thing, enjoy whatever he achieves, and let the training plan work its way through. So, predictions for this week? We don't yet know if the Bow brothers will be back from their bout of COVID. I expect they would like to be, especially for their home meet in Oslo, and for the distribution of all the Crystal Globes, many, but not all of which, will go into Johannes's hands. If they are back, then there's no saying what shape they'll be in, though we know that even an underpar Johannes can still be very competitive. So, on the men's side, let's expect Vettel Christensen to continue his good run of form, an improvement from Sturaholm Ligrid, and let's see if we can get some of the youngsters onto the podium. It feels like Nicholas Hartweg has lost some of his speed, but his Swiss compatriot Sebastian Stalder has been moving up the rankings in recent weeks. Thomas O'Jacamel is gloriously unpredictable. Had a podium last week, may be due for another good day. Martin Ponsoloma has some great speed right now, and should shoot better away from the pressure of the Swedish crowd. Perhaps Ponsoloma can upset the Norwegians in the sprint. Expect the French to move up the field in the pursuit. And I'm going to pick Christiansen for the mass start, just because he's figured it out now. Obviously this might change if Johannes looks good. If he does, then he'd be my favourite for the sprint and the pursuit. But I worry about fatigue, so I'll stick with Christiansen for the mass start to end the weekend. The women's side is all to play for. There are still plenty of athletes in the running for the Crystal Globes. I expect Julia Simon to take the overall World Cup globe. She's been super consistent this year. And even if she finishes around 10th in the sprint, she'll be up towards the podium in the pursuit and in the head-to-head mass start. Recency bias says Dorothy Avera will be on good form, but I'd actually pick Lisa Vitozzi, as she will want to bounce back from a disappointing Ostersund. Denise Hermann-Vick and Hannah Erberg are both capable of winning if they can shoot clean. They've both had problems recently. But the person I think is really going to shine? Marta Olsby-Roysland. She's raced less than the others this season is a consistent performer on the range, and it just feels like the time is right for her to reclaim the spotlight from the Norwegian crowd. So perhaps Roysland for the sprint, one of the Italians for the pursuit, and Julia Simon for the mass start. She won't want to miss shot number 20 again, and she looks determined to get another win. I really think she wants to win by winning races, not by being on the podium a lot. But she should maybe give herself a break and recognize that she's achieved something great this season even with a bout of Covid thrown in after the World Championships. One last thing. Often these podcasts take us to dark places. We talk about cheating and doping, violence and injustice. It's not deliberate. These are the topics that come to mind and I end up researching them. Perhaps it's just me. To redress the balance, a few stories about fair play and people doing the right thing. There's a lovely video clip on the IBU Twitter feed from January last year. It's from a men's mass start race, and it's the middle of the pack, quite early on, so the tracks are crowded. Anton Smolsky gets skied across and loses his left ski. His momentum carries him on a few yards before he draws to a halt. Behind him on the tracks, Vitautis Strollia, still skiing, dips down, picks up the lost ski in his left hand, swaps it over to his right, and hands it back to Smolsky without even a hesitation. Asked about it afterwards, Strollia said, 
You have to be a human first, and only then can you compete. Similarly, in the European Championships earlier this year, Michaela Carrara of Italy came in first, but then quickly informed the organisers that she'd actually missed two targets. She had missed, but the biathlete in the next lane had crossed-fired into hers and hit the targets. No one caught this on the TV cameras, but it was the integrity of Michaela and the Italian coaches that brought it to light. She slipped down from 1st to 11th in the rankings. And back in 2018, Daria Demracheva, one of the most exciting biathletes of her era, was chasing down Dorothy Vera in a pursuit race in Antholtz. As they were coming to the finish, Demracheva accidentally skied across Vera's pole and broke it. Demracheva slowed down and let Vera cross the line ahead of her. Afterwards, she said, From my point of view, it would have been unfair to battle at the final straight with an athlete who only has one ski pole. Therefore, I let Dorothy ahead of me. I could have overrun her, but it wouldn't have been great sportsmanship. It's things like this that give you a sense of the nature of biathletes. We should aspire to be more like them. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on Twitter at skishootrepeat. And please do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. This podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I expect to get fact-checked. I shall be back next week for the final episode of this season, reviewing the last races in Oslo, looking back on some highlights of the year, reflecting on a bunch of stuff, and looking ahead to some podcast plans for the off-season. Thanks for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.